Welcome to WFIU's Profiles. I'm Josh Brewer. This week on Profiles, we'll hear two conversations. In the second half of the show, we'll listen to a conversation with Dahlia Lithwick. Lithwick is a senior editor and Supreme Court correspondent at Slate.com. She writes the site's jurisprudence column and hosts Amicus, Slate's Supreme Court podcast. But first, we'll hear a conversation with Robert Barnes. Barnes is an artist, often called the most famous unknown painter in America. His work is currently on display at the Indiana University Art Museum in a special exhibit on view through December 20th. WFIU's Yael Cassander talks with Robert Barnes. Welcome to Profiles, a weekly program that introduces members of our community, along with visiting artists, scholars, entertainers, and other notable figures to the WFIU audience. I'm Yael Cassandra, and our guest today is the painter Robert Barnes. Welcome to Profiles, and happy birthday, Bob. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> We're welcoming Robert Barnes back to the Indiana University Bloomington campus on the occasion of his late career retrospective at the IU Art Museum. Robert Barnes is acclaimed as a visual storyteller, and his major works, Dennis Adrian writes, are grounded in historical, literary, and artistic subjects, many of a peculiar kind, including alchemy, secret poets and writers, and artists specializing in the bizarre, the fantastic, the mythical, and the hermetically arcane worlds of religious history, myths, and legends. Barnes taught painting in IU's Hope School of Fine Arts from 1964 through 1999, Since then, he's been living in coastal Maine and in Umbria, Italy, with his wife, the painter Nancy Barnes. But let's go back to the beginning. You were born in Washington, Mm D.C., but you relocated to the Chicago area with your family. Talk about moving to Chicago, the Chicago area, going to the Art Institute of Chicago, and how being in that cultural milieu may have somehow informed your path, if you can look at it with 2020 hindsight. Well, it's a long time ago, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I don't remember in my childhood any contact with culture, with the arts or music. I had to do it mostly myself. There are no books in my house. There's no music. And I had to find it for myself. <laughs> Believe it or not, the first composer that I learned to like was Stravinsky. Maybe. How did you stumble across Stravinsky? I just heard it somewhere, and then I got a disc. Most kids are reading porn. I would stay on the basement smoking cigars and listening to Stravinsky. <laughs> and and you, was, you don't know where that came from? No. Well, my grandfather was very strange. He was a diplomat. He uh, was not uh, your normal person. He was not insane or anything, but he was very eccentric and loved opera. His favorite moment was that he played the violin for Ginny Lind. Oh. Well, how about, how about visual art? How did you stumble across painting? Well, I had the usual. I went to a good high school, Nutria High School, which was famous as a really elegant and excellent high school. And uh, I had art teachers who exposed me, as we all do. That's where we find our base often, very often. I had teachers who, uh, one of them was an art critic, who was a Chicago Tribune art critic, and even took me down to the Art Institute. That's where I remember one of the first shows I saw was Matisse, which I didn't like very much. It was mm. too dumb. 
too dumb. You felt that the content was um, well for someone whose first exposure. Mm-hmm. Everyone's thought about art is something like Barbizon or Renaissance, gray, you know, brownish stuff. And it was very shocking to me. Later, I came to love Matisse, but I did that, and we had a very eccentric music teacher who uh, taught musicology and would burst into Indian love songs in the language and taught us to love music, and that was good for me. That's how I got my start of liking these things. Well, it sounds like a pretty broad but also rather in-depth and expert cultural education. Yeah. But why was it, do you think, that, that painting was the thing that really grabbed you? This is a true story. I went down to Chicago because I wanted to become an actor. I wanted to go to the Goodman Theater School. And I went with my friend Jimmy Dean. (laughs) Not (laughs) Not that one. (laughs) And he was going to apply to the Art Institute, and I was going to do the Goodman Theater. Actually, at the Art Institute, you wouldn't believe this, they gave you a scholarship exam where they gave you a bunch of pencils and some crayons, and you made creative things, <laughs> supposedly. And it was so bizarre. And they looked down and choose people. That was the application? Yeah. And so I went over to the Goodman Theater School, and it was closed on Monday. So I went with my friend Jimmy, and I took the exam. And they gave me a scholarship, so I went to that institute. No one believes this in my life. <laughs> That's how I started. I wonder if they kept that little scribble that you made and well it's probably just a real scribble and they thought that was creative a lot of people think anything that's bizarre is creative it isn't you know in fact very often it's conventional to be bizarre but presumably at the art institute they knew the difference no they didn't (laughs) (laughs) well so who were your teachers and how did you manage to get lumped in with these folks called the chicago imagists i never did i never belonged to the chicago imagists i've always been on the periphery of that Mm -hmm. when the Museum of Contemporary Art, at a show of the images, I was excluded. And a lot of the critics complained. And I, I told them, you know, I never was part of it. If you look at my work, you, you'll see it. I don't belong anywhere. Nonetheless, Franz Schulze calls yeah. you a second-generation Chicago imagist. What do you think about that? <laughs> Terrible mistake, because I was before <laughs> the images. I was in Chicago way before that, so they came much later after I'd left. How about these people, Irving Petlin, Ellen Lanyon, Seymour Rozovsky? Irving Petlin was my rival, in love as well as art. He's still living. He's one of the few uh, that are still living. Um, In love as well as art? That sounds like a pretty good story there. He wanted to marry the woman that I married. (laughs) I wish he had. (laughs) (laughs) So... Is he as acclaimed an artist as you these days? He's in Paris and Mm -hmm. married a ballerina. I guess he's doing okay. You don't hear much about him. But as far as that being an actual group or, I mean, this grouping, where did this come from? And and, and does that have any particular significance? It was the people that were in school at the same time. Uh We had a very close-knit group. Ellen Lanyon was a wonderful person. She died just recently and broke my heart. I I could not get it. I still can't get over it. She dropped dead in Heathrow Airport. Mm-hmm. Well, I can understand that, waiting those lines to get through customs. So at any rate, uh, Rosovsky was a little before me. And we also had Leon Golub, who I adore still. And we had uh, Klaus Oldenburg, 
We shared a, a love of Disney. And he of the gigantic hamburgers and things like yeah. that, the soft sculpture. Yeah. And so um, he was your classmate at the Chicago yeah. Art Institute? Uh, I think maybe he only went two years. Cliff Westerman was a bigger influence. Hmm. I loved Cliff. Do you, do you feel, for example, since Clayce Oldenburg is someone that folks know, is there an affinity between his work and yours? Yeah. Well, it's the Disney-esque thing. Disney-esque. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at my paintings, you will. people always say, oh, you're a wonderful colorist. I'm not a great colorist. I love Pinocchio and Snow White. And the color of Pinocchio and Snow White is infused in me. They're probably the first... Uh, human-made objects. It could be called art or images. And I, I just adore Disney. It's so interesting that you bring up Pinocchio yeah. because in both of these images in the Blood and Perfume series, you have a central figure who looks like someone who's a puppeteer. A yeah, that's people misinterpret that. He's pouring, actually pouring perfume. I see that yeah. in Molinar Grasse, yeah. but also in this one, uh, Guerlain, which is also about a, a perfumist. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, there's a gesture in the center of the image that looks almost like a Geppetto or someone well, who's making... You, you could say that, but really it's just making perfume. And uh, I love that series. I love doing it because I I studied perfume. So I w- was interested in it because uh, smell is not visual. And I wanted to paint it so it smelled. And I met this woman who was this perfume lady. She was, I think, Romanian or something. And she was lovely and very uh, intelligent. And I got samples, and she asked me what I was doing with it. And I said, well, I'm going to put it in the paint because I'm painting these perfume paintings. And I got bags and bags of perfume, which I put into my paint. You added perfume literally to your paint. Instead of turpentine, yeah. Instead of turpentine? Yeah. As a solvent? It's a better solvent than turpentine because it's made to evaporate. The, the, what you want in a, uh, in, a, in a solvent when you're painting is you want something to evaporate out quickly. And this was great. If, and I looked into buying the solvent. It was horribly expensive. So, so you really were an alchemist. I don't know. I, was, <laughs> I never thought of that. I just wanted perfumes around me. I wanted to think about it. And I think you can sort of sense it, although they don't smell anymore. Well, you know, all art uh, aspires to the condition of music. I guess that was the credo of the aesthetic movement. I guess for you, all art aspires to the condition of aroma. Huh? Or me. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean by that? How I am. I, my paintings are about me. They aren't about anything. This always shocks people when I tell them that the imagery is only an armature for the painting. It's not important. Although to me, it becomes a link that, I wouldn't want to use the word inspiration, but it makes me have a different contact other than touch. Touch is the most important thing in painting. You can tell a person's style by touch. And then I, I started painting that way. The second most important thing is the massing of volumes and color, which is not, I never I plan it. It's intuitive, totally. For someone who's so concerned with touch and with the feeling of the painting, the imagery that you do choose is, as Dennis Adrian wrote, arcane, esoteric. You refer to 
complex allegory and biblical allusions. I mean, this whole show is called Grand Allusion. So why then do you choose such elaborate imagery and narrative for your pictures if you're more interested in the formal qualities? I don't choose it. I mean, I don't see it as arcane either. I see it as something that interests me and intrigues me. And I don't choose it. It comes to me. And uh, I will read something or find something, and I'll think, well, that makes a nice allegorical moment. It just happens. I don't plan it. It happens. And that's the best painting that I do is when it, it flows and when it becomes like gesturing or conducting music. I play a lot of music when I work. I remember. And I feel that you have to swing into a painting. It is shocking to me sometimes the imagery that comes up, but that can't be helped. That's what it is. So you're saying, Bob, that biblical allegory or Greco-Roman myth or various other sources of your stories are there waiting in the wings, ready to be placed into service of your paintings. Well, I have to go back to rural Maine, but I hope this never gets to me. I have never read the Bible. <laughs> and it doesn't really interest me. I, mean, I was thinking just a, old, a bunch of old rabbis in the desert scribbled this thing up. Oh, that's not good to say, is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, how? but how about the fact that, you know, the first painting that put you on the map was one of Judith and Hall of Fernes. Yeah. Where did Where did you pull that from? Another uh, painting? I mean, there are many, a, many paintings of the same subject. That was a metaphor for school. I see. Talk, talk about that. I thought of it at that time as school as a kind of beheading, that you're deprived of intelligence rather than gaining it. And I often have thought of that later, that some some contact I've had with education is to make you think a certain way. And that, to me, is a beheading when it becomes rote. Well, that means a lot coming from uh, a loaded statement, coming from someone who has devoted the, the large part of his career to academia. Yeah. How, what was your relationship to yeah, teaching? Yeah, you know, I always hated the academic aspect of teaching. I loved my students, and I wanted them the best, and they definitely inspired me, even you. Why, thank you. And I, I grew from my students. You know, this place, the School of the Fine Arts here, was started as an attempt to transplant the artistic community into the academic setting and was left alone to develop. Henry Hope, he started the school, and he expected artists to be artists. And we all had studios, and he would go around at night and make sure we were working, and we had to show our work. Mm. We had to be professional artists first, and then all of a sudden I discovered I could never get another job because I don't have a master's degree. Uh, Matisse couldn't have gotten a job here. <laughs> Picasso couldn't have gotten a job. People started judging each other on paper. I swear nobody really knows what a good painting looks like anymore yeah. and wouldn't judge an artist, oh, well, you paint well. Well, certainly there's a lot of focus on pedigree and academia now. Oh, yeah. But how did you perceive your role vis-a-vis the students that you were mentoring? My purpose was for them to think 
that what I told them was their own idea later. Inspire a person to think <laughs> and develop, and then later on they say, oh, I thought of this, and that's a wonderful <laughs> thing to do. Yeah. One of the first things I remember you saying in a, in a critique, maybe not a critique, maybe just an orientation, was, okay, kids, some of you may be here because you think painting is fun. Oh, yeah, I hate Painting is not fun. It's religion. <laughs> it's religion. Would you elaborate? Well, even religion gets funny now. They have these guys running around in fancy robes and playing guitars. And I don't think that's religion. It is something more profound than fun. Fun is, well, I don't know what fun is, but it's not painting. It's not art. We live in a generation that can only be entertained, and art has to entertain. But they're not sucked into it. You know, one of the things that I want most from my work is for people to immerse themselves. There's a collector who writes about me in this book, Larry Aronson, who has paintings that he's had for years. And he'll call me up and, oh, Bob, I just discovered He said, I've been looking at this for 20 years, and I see this new thing. And I, even I do. I will go through, the, I, this morning, went through the gallery, and I thought, oh, I was smart to do that. I didn't realize that I was so smart. Mm. But, and so I guess you're making a distinction between art that lasts and art that doesn't last. Well, that art involves you you as you, not uh, shocks you or reaches out to you. It, you have to enter. You have to be part of it. Monet said something about how people want to explain and understand my work when all they need to do is love it. And that's true. We're so used to answers and even questions that we can't approach something and just meld with it, mm -hmm. just blend into it, just experience I mean, you don't question trees. You don't question grass. You experience it. Mm -hmm. you, know, you smell it. You walk on it. And that's what I want. Yeah. It also brings to mind the difference between sort of high art and low art. And currently, and for, for almost 50 years, really, that boundary has been blurred to, to a greater extent. You came of age at a time when with pop art and even with some of the, um, well, Rauschenberg, there was a great deal of that blurring going on. And even with your buddy, Klaus Oldenburg, the appropriation from popular culture mm -hmm. was becoming orthodox in fine art. Well, you know. What, I, what do you, it sounds like you have maybe a bit of hesitation about that. Well, I grew up with Marcel Duchamp as a young artist, mm -hmm. and he encouraged me. He said, well, you love theater. You know, make your paints theater. He didn't, was not dogmatic. Mm -hmm. And when I look at Duchamp's work, there's a romance and there's a power that is not entertainment. It's more something you learn to believe and you enter into. He was a tremendous influence on me, and no one can understand that because he wasn't, he didn't paint flat paintings. <laughs> well, early on, he did. You know, artists are never what people... Uh, make them out to be after they're dead. Marcel Duchamp said, look, they're waiting to write my biography till I'm dead, because then they can say whatever they think. <laughs> I started out as an abstract expressionist, and I moved my way out basically because of people like Grace Hardigan, who broke the mold. And I moved 
into, I guess, a sort of semi-abstract thing. But it was such a blessing because it taught me to love the texture, the resistance of paint, the viscous state of paint. When you work this into a painting, you have something different. Mm -hmm. Frank Auerbach was an mm -hmm. English artist that I was influenced by. Mm -hmm. Very plastic. He does portraits that are almost unrecognizable. Yeah. I didn't want to hold that far back. I wanted mm -hmm. to go a little farther. Mm -hmm. The problem in painting is you always have to go a little farther, and you often ruin paintings, or your paintings are overworked. I think many of my paintings are overworked because I have to find out what's... <laughs> after death. You know, what is on the other side? I have to find out what's there. How did you manage to transition from abstraction to representation and then stay the course in an atmosphere of the 50s and 60s that was very anti-representation? Well, it didn't matter to me, but um, I think it's my love of literature and theater. Although moving pictures of the cinema is so powerful now. It may be our only art form, our greatest mm. art form, and the rest is dropping away. Mm. I paint pictures because I like being a little bit archaic, a little bit useless, you know, mm. where you don't have to prove anything, really. You do it, and, that, and you say, there you go. That's what you get. That's almost, to me, sounds like a concession that painting is not a relevant art form in our contemporary society. Well, it's relevant if it's there. That's what I think. If, for instance, Picasso did a cave painting, it would be relevant very quickly. You see, it doesn't matter. It's the person that matters and how well the person does it and how it affects people. If they can love it, then you made something wonderful. Well, they can only love it if you're well-positioned enough for them to see it. Yeah, well, that's a problem. And yeah. how, how did you manage that out here in the Midwest for so many years? Well, I had a New York gallery. Alan Frumkin showed me for years. And what about all of the other poor slobs who are out here trying to be painters in the Midwest? I, I would say don't worry about it. Paint your pictures the best you can and make as powerful an image, of power for whatever you do, powerful enough that it, it feeds you. and that, it, that, that the image feeds you spiritually? Everything. Now, what about the food on the table? How How is, it, how is an artist going to make it in a society where painting is not esteemed as well, it, a relevant art form. I don't know, because you can't teach anymore unless you, uh, for one job, there are probably 10,000 <laughs> applications now. Well, the world has grown. That's so many problems. The world has, is getting too crowded to be a person. Why do you think people are always on the phone? I think they have to justify, make sure that they're there. Oh, I still exist I'm in this crowd. Here I am. What do you think about your painting's relationship to contemporary society? I remember that there was this refrain back in art school <laughs> about what makes your painting of this time and place. Is that a concern of yours now? Well, my answer to that is I'm here <laughs> in this time and place, and I count, and I do what I have to do. And I don't care whether I'm fashionable or not. Every fashion dies. And sometimes things come back again. 
And I've known so many artists, like the Barbizons. They get, oh, no, the Barbizons are horrible. Now people are rediscovering the Barbizons. They did that with three Rayfields. Like it went down again. But right. you know, <laughs> And even Vermeer was forgotten about for two centuries. Yeah, well, sure. And Rembrandt. I spend a lot of time on the seacoast. And I love the tides. The tides bring you something, and they take it away. They bring whole tree trunks, pieces of piers, bottles. Where I live, there's a lot of shards of porcelain. You can go down to the beach, in front of my house, and I can pick up pieces of porcelain from the 1800s. And I have a collection, a pile of them. They're so beautiful. The blue and white porcelain? Yeah. Mm. And some of them have writing on them. And some of them have Asiatic uh, symbols. The tide is what we exist in. We exist in this great tide that flows and ebbs and then comes back and goes out. And you can't care about it. You have no control over it. I mean, artists that were dead come back. I mean, we're passé, come back. Some don't, some do. But maybe... Time filters things. When you talk about Maine, it reminds me that, well, you've been there for 15 years yeah. now. Huh? Was that spectacular landscape and the kind of sublime awesomeness of the ocean and the coastline a big motivation, or was it the legacy of American painters living in Maine? I was raised on Chesapeake Bay, and when I retired, I always wanted to get back to the ocean. There's this terrible draw of the Atlantic. I like the Atlantic because it's rough and not embracing. It's threatening. It challenges you. You go down the shore, and it it is not sweet. Mm -hmm. It's rough, and it's cold, and and there's no beach. There's rocks. And people are always getting too close up in, in Acadia. They tell them not to get there, and they get washed off and eaten by the ocean. But there's something about the ocean that, uh, that I remember from my youth, the Chesapeake, and that was part of myself. I don't like things that are real easy. Mm-hmm. And I don't like... Uh, I'm not sure. One of the things about the ocean is it doesn't give you answers. It's not understandable. I don't like answers. An answer is the end. And if you have an answer, then you stop. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about paintings is each painting tells you you've got to do another. <laughs> and if you if you keep that attitude, you never die because you have to wake up the next day to do it. I used to like in painting to dog racing where you have this bunny rabbit that's in front of you and the dogs chase after it. If they get nearer, it goes faster. If they were to get it, it would be terrible. It's just dumb metal and fake fur. But you don't want an answer in painting. You want the next painting to bring you something. And I love that. I just love I love the pursuit. I want the pursuit but without the end of the pursuit, without the success or whatever it is. So the longing and, and the yeah. chase, yeah. There's a, a long line of painters who retreated to the rocky coast of Maine before you. Do you think about Winslow Homer, for example? No, I think about um, Marin. Oh, John Marin. Uh, I mm-hmm. like Mar- John Marin because yeah. he did what a lot of American 
artists did tried to adapt Cubism without understanding anything about it. And some just made dumb paintings, but he made a new imagery from Cubism that wasn't related to Cubism. It was just more of a fragmentation. I just loved to look at them. Mm. I see some of that same interest in your paintings. For one thing, you paint in, with very opaque paint. Number two, you'll have, say, a very shallow representational space like that of a proscenium. Or yeah, something. well, I think of theater. Theater. Yeah. And then thirdly, you'll, you'll do things like this where you'll have represented surfaces parallel to the picture mm-hmm. plane. So you're, you're constantly liking cubism, chopping yeah, up Yeah, I think that. they're like little vignettes uh-huh. and that you breaking it up. Uh-huh. I don't do it for any cubistic reasons. I just think, oh, this line looks good here, and it makes I like to look at it. Uh-huh. <laughs> I haven't got any real good theories. I just do my paintings. Actually, some of the best things in my paintings are things that can't be explained. I know that when I look at them, I think, oh, and that goes back to the paint living for itself, like Mm -hmm. the way I started. Mm -hmm. The pictures we're looking at here, the Macbeth and and the Cinema a la Rocca, they're both in pastel. That's a medium that few artists have really mastered. Degas is one. Actually, I've evolved something that is maybe unique to me, is I've done pastels and casein, which is one of my favorite mediums. It was introduced to me by a teacher at the Art Institute. Casein's a wonderful medium because it's like acrylics, except it's not icky and plasticky. It's milk-based. And, you know, if you drop milk on a table and it dries, it's hard to get off. And this doesn't bleed. And it also makes a base for pastels because it's a little rough. And I mix them. I love the medium, and I don't use it the way other people do because mm-hmm. I'm not other people. <laughs> The one thing I love about Picasso, I don't think I like many of his images. I don't think I like many of his paintings, but I love the way they're done with confidence, and he bends the medium to him. And that's what I do with Pastel and Casey. When I was young, we in abstract expressionism, we, we talked about the leading, having the paint lead you and the material lead you, and you... Flowing with and I woke up one day and I said, that's a bunch of bull. I'm in command here. <laughs> you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make it the way I want it. And I like that about Picasso. He bends things to his will. <laughs> uh, Let's talk about some of the other artists whom you admire. You, the Italians are, are a big influence on you, the Renaissance painters. Oh, uh, how could they not be? Tintoretto and Titian, Tiepolo, a lot of that. Broken space comes from Tiepolo, things flying. And Tiepolo is a much misunderstood artist. It's best to look at his sketches for the frescoes because you get more out of them. Mm-hmm. But uh, Tiepolo is a, a fantastic composer. And uh, Tintoretto, I mean, is a mind blaster. You look at his paintings, and I don't imitate anyone. I, I absorb it. That lunch bags project that you did. Oh, I'll never live that down. Can you tell us about that? I remember seeing that and being pretty delighted because it exposed a a really sweet side of you. Everyone loves my lunch bags. Yeah, we'll talk about it. My eldest daughter with my current wife took her lunch to school and someone swiped it. And so I said, well, I'll put your name on your bag next time. (laughs) 
And I did, and then, of course, I can't leave anything alone. <laughs> the name got more and more elaborate, and then it, it sort of morphed into pictures. And then when my second daughter started school, they got more and more elaborate, and then they were every day what she was studying, what happened, what went wrong at school, and I would make this little theater for her. They didn't care. They didn't pay much attention to it. But then their friends said, oh, could we have one? Could we have the bag? And they thought, oh, wait a minute. I got something here. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know they were doing it. Uh, one day we opened their closet, and they had all the bags were there. And then they started collecting. There are over a 1,000 of them. And the bags just, just got more and more elaborate. And then when see, Betsy had it in the show here. Betsy Stewart. Stewart, yeah. Mm-hmm. When they came here, there were two big garbage, well, there were th- four big garbage, we took two, came here. The sandwiches are still in some. <laughs> Surprising, <laughs> there were roaches. <laughs> they smelled like, like lunchrooms, bananas and peanut butter. And the show smelled like it. <laughs> Has someone managed to archive all of those? Do they still exist somewhere? No, they're in bags. <laughs> well, everyone can relate to lunch bags, but yeah. not everyone can relate to myth and allegory and some of the more esoteric stories that you reference. Are your paintings for everyone or only for the initiated? I hope they're for everyone. I don't think that the references are important. They're important to me, not important to them. I hope they can look at them and say, oh, that's pretty. Really? Pretty is almost nicer than beautiful because it's more down to earth. And I have had experiences with people who are not educated in the arts who just like them. And I love that. It doesn't have to be explained. You can make up your own story. As a matter of fact, most people do. When people write about my work, it's always different than I thought. And I like that. That's fine. I'm not trying to educate people or lecture them. If you do know the sources, sometimes it makes it more interesting. Like the dance of the Tripotencias is a Mexican dance where the devil and evil and good do this dance. It's done, actual, and it's an actual dance at festivals. And the evil and good fight. And all of a sudden, the devil comes in and splits them. And the idea is that neither good nor bad ever win. They're always combatants. Mm. Byron knew that when he wrote Mm. his uh, Manfred, where when the hero dies, the devil had taken his soul and the priest is arguing over it, and, and the devil's arguing, and the Manfred, who's dying, wakes up, as they often do in theater, and says, I'm not going with either of you guys. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get me. I'm on my own person, and mm-hmm. that's how it ends. It's also interesting because it alludes to some time before when evil and good were a pair. Yeah. yeah and the, the idea of a, of a conclusion or answer is what's important to me. I, I'm not really excited about that. <laughs> Certainly my own conclusion, which is coming up, I guess, in maybe 20 years. Mm. I'm 81 today. Happy birthday. <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure I want to do that. <laughs> and maybe I'll figure it out. I think you will. Well, 
Let's end with one final funny aside, if you're allowed to tell tales out of school. Uh-oh. I understand you had a very famous Hoosier as your student at one time. I had uh, a film actor that went here. I've forgotten his name. Kevin Klein. Yeah. Was uh, he your student? No, he's my model. I know all about him. I know everything about his dimensions and everything. Thanks. That's a that's a great place to end. Bob, thank you so much for coming in today. You've been listening to Profiles, and our guest on the program today is the painter Robert Barnes. For WFIU, I'm Yael Cassander. That was WFIU's Yael Cassander speaking with painter Robert Barnes. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. Next, we'll hear a conversation I hosted with Slate.com's Supreme Court correspondent, Dahlia Lithwick. Welcome to WFIU's Profiles. I'm Josh Brewer. Our guest today is Dahlia Lithwick. Dolly is the senior editor and Supreme Court correspondent at Slate.com. She writes the site's jurisprudence column and hosts Amicus, Slate's Supreme Court podcast. Dolly has also written articles for The New York Times, The New Republic, The Washington Post, and has appeared on The Daily Show. She is currently working on a book about the four women who have served on the Supreme Court. Dahlia, welcome, and thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Josh. Well, you know, I'd like to talk about your upcoming book and your reporting, but I'd also like to know just a little bit about your background and how you got interested in law. The really easy answer is I was one of those people who went to law school because I couldn't do math, so I couldn't get into med school. I was not really sure what I was doing there. I quit after the first year, and I had to beg my way back in. And I just always felt like I was really interested in the law, but I didn't know if I wanted to be a lawyer. So the truth is I think I probably became most interested in the law after law school when I clerked, and I clerked for a judge on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And then when I got to really see sort of judicial opinion writing and actually watch cases argued in front of federal appellate judges, I was like, wow, no, this is actually kind of cool. So I think it didn't really come alive for me as something that made a huge difference in people's lives until after law school. And uh, when did you start doing reporting on, on law? Did that come about soon after? Pretty soon after. This is the embarrassing, dark part of my story. I clerked in Reno, Nevada, and then I stayed in Reno at a divorce law firm for a couple of years. Um, How was that? That was just fascinating. That's the novel I haven't written yet. But it was really, you know, this very, very exclusive boutique divorce firm that did high-end divorces. And Reno, you know, was famously the divorce capital of this country for a long time. And there was just a lot of mayhem and madness around doing people's divorce and their custody and their, you know, always joke, you know, the annulment after the circus circus wedding the night before. There was quite a bit of those calls to the office. It was the whole practice was both fascinating and also just kind of heartbreaking in the way that how dissolving did, marriages will be. How did you get involved in that? I, I just know. stuck around Reno. I After I clerked, the first job after I got was from this divorce firm, and I loved the lawyers there. It was really interesting. 
you know, the sort of emblematic story from that time was that all my classmates from Stanford Law School had gone off to very fancy boutique firms in San Francisco, and it was the beginning of the dot-com boom. So a lot of them were at Google and at eBay, and, you know, they'd be having these sushi carts coming down the hallways at their jobs, and I was in this two-lawyer firm in Reno breaking up marriages. It was so not what anyone else was doing, but it was very fun, and I learned a ton, and I actually got to sit in trials, which is a nice thing for a baby lawyer, and after two years, I was just, I can't do this anymore. I can't fight over people's Tupperware for one more day. And then how did you go into reporting after breaking up people's marriages? (laughs) (laughs) As if that wasn't fun Uh enough. I was just absolutely driving across the country, and I was not sure what I was going to do next. I was pretty sure I was going to have to nanny for my big brother for a couple of years until I sorted myself out. How old were you at this point? I was 20, late 20s. I literally happened to be in Washington, D.C. when Slate, which was this fledgling internet magazine, was covering the Microsoft trial. It was this big antitrust trial at the time, and I was sleeping on a friend's futon, and they called her and said, we need somebody, our reporter, who was Michael Lewis, just left. We need somebody to at least occupy the seat and keep the press pass. Uh, Do you want to do it? And she said, no, I have a job, but there's this person who will get off my futon, (laughs) so maybe she'll. And I literally stumbled my way into covering a huge trial for Slate, which I had not heard of. And the next thing I knew when the trial was over, I literally was at my brother's basement thinking about starting to nanny for him. And Slate called back and said, where'd you go? Come cover the court for us. So So, serendipity, right place, right time, right moment. The internet was really exploring sort of new forms and new kinds of journalism. I was able to go into the court and write kind of differently about the Supreme Court. And it all kind of was just perfect storm of lucky, happy circumstances. And from the beginning, you were covering the Supreme Court. Yeah. From the beginning, after the Microsoft trial, they put me at the court and said, have fun with it. And the court, you know, hadn't credentialed an online person yet. I think I was the first. And I sort of looked around and said, well, you know, everybody here is pretty serious. A lot of them, you know, Pulitzer Prize winners and serious. This is a beat that nobody leaves, you know, like toes first. This is a great beat. So people have been covering it for decades. And I just said, well, I'm going to try to do this fun and kind of goofy and I'm not sure anyone's going to read it, but my dad will. And that was sort of how it started is right from the beginning. I felt like a little bit irreverent, a little bit poking fun at the sort of self-seriousness of the institution. And so 15 years later, I'm still there. So you've been working for Slate for 15 years and you've had a podcast, which has been, you said a year? Yeah, one year. Yeah. Your podcast is called Amicus. And and that refers to a person who is not directly part of a case, but advises that case? Yeah. I mean, it technically means friend of the court. And you can file an amicus brief, which just means I'm a friend of the court. I have some stake in this. You have to lay out what your stake is. And then you just get to write a brief to the court. And so I think we like the name amicus because it was sort of friendly. And the idea was always we were going to try to be a bridge between what was happening at the court, which, as you know, is sometimes covered in a pretty rarefied fashion, and all those people out there who don't get to be in the room like I do. When I first started listening to the podcast, I actually had to look that up. I didn't know what it meant. How do you report to an audience who might not know law or legalese? 
It's a great question, and it's always been my challenge, even as a print reporter, was that I felt like there is an amazing corpus of reporting done by law professors for law professors. In other words, you can get on any number of fantastic legal blogs and read incredibly thorough, good accounts of what happens in the court by people who, by the way, wrote the treatise, you know. And so I felt like that wasn't space that was useful, but that a lot of people that I knew looked at what happened, not just at the Supreme Court, but I think in courts in general in the legal system, and just it was like science reporting. It was just completely inscrutable to them. And there was a lot of jargon, and there was a lot of assumed knowledge that people didn't have. And I felt, and I still feel more and more, that what happens at the court is so foundational to who we are, right? I mean, they're deciding gay marriage. They're, are they going to uphold Obamacare? You know, are they going to uphold you know, provisions of the Fair Housing Act, the Voting Rights Act? This is unbelievably consequential. It inflects on every piece of our lives, and yet nobody can understand what's going on. And I really felt this, and this is just a dumb anecdote, but I always felt like I'd be at the bus stop with the other mommies, and they'd say, yeah, I don't read about the court. I don't understand it. And I'd be like, oh, my God, you have a PhD in physics. You know, like, you need to engage with this. And so I always felt like a huge part of my own project as a journalist was to try to demystify and to try to talk about the court in ways, both in the podcast and in my writing, that even if you were reading your very first article, you would be able to penetrate what this system basically is, what this conflict is, and how it matters to you. And so I do think of it as kind of modified science reporting or sports reporting, where I'm trying really hard to explain it, not to the people in the industry, they know it better than I do, but to the people out there who think it's too hard. Well, and I, I think it's funny you say sports reporting. I actually felt the same way. When I first started listening to your podcast, it was almost like a weekly roundup. And this is the team. We get to know them. We get to know the players, basically. And that seemed accessible in a way that I hadn't heard before. Was this because you started it on the Internet? Uh, partly. I think it's also because my own view of things is that the Supreme Court wants to position itself as the oracle at Delphi, right? You know, pay no attention to what goes on in this marble building. Incredibly smart people are talking about very complicated things. You know, all you need to do is know you're in good hands. And that's not going to work in a democracy, right? That's not a third co-equal branch of government. That's crazy. And so I always felt that my job was to bring the people to life and bring the voices to life and to try to help the people who are not in the building. And this is important, Josh. There are a handful of seats. It's a tiny building. People stood in line for four days to get into the gay marriage arguments in the rain. There were parties in that case who could not get into the building. Nobody gets in there. There's no television. I'm in there. There's no television. There's audio that's released a week later. And the entire kind of secrecy around it drives me nuts because this is, as I said, historic, important, consequential moments in our history, and we're locked out of it. And so my feeling has always been, and this is the kind of subversive part of the podcast, if I could do nothing else but bring the audio and put it in a podcast in a form that people will listen to, and they can hear Justice Scalia, and they can hear Justice Kennedy, and they can be in that room, then that's kind of what I really desperately want to do is make this about people and real conflicts and help people understand that it's not this kind of mystery box in the middle of D.C. that nobody can penetrate. 
And having the audio recordings, isn't that relatively new that they released them so quickly? I mean, you put them on your podcast, and I really enjoy hearing the actual audio. It's a great question. And the answer is, traditionally, all the audio was released after um, oral arguments. The court makes an audio recording largely for archival purposes. And then in 2000, after Bush v. Gore, uh, then Chief Justice William Rehnquist said, hey, this is a really important case. People might want to listen to Bush v. Gore. And so he made same-day audio available. And people listen. They listen in their cars and they watch C-SPAN and they're like, oh, my God, I'm in the court. I'm hearing it. Uh, And the court promptly did that a handful of times uh, for big, big cases, for Heller, the guns case, and for Grutter, the affirmative action case. They did it for a couple of cases and they just stopped. And it was crazy because there's no cost to the court of letting people listen live. And for a while, they had no same-day audio. And a few years ago, they enacted what I think is the sort of worst of all worlds policy, which is that audio goes online about 5 o'clock on Friday. And you know as a journalist that 5 o'clock on Friday is not a great place to dump important information for the week. And so people weren't really using it. And really one of the purposes for me of Amicus was to try to say, okay, we'll take it at 5 o'clock Friday and we'll put it up Saturday morning. But we want people to be able to hear because I think if you can't hear, you're listening to people interpret. It's not the same. And so that was the slightly subversive, you know, if the court's going to dump it 5 o'clock on Friday, we will do our show then. You'll play it. Yeah. In your podcast, you kind of get to know the personalities, which is is what you're looking to achieve, yeah? Right. The personalities, we, we try to interview the advocates who argued at the court, and sometimes it's really fun to hear them listen to themselves three days earlier and go, oh, my God, I can't believe I did I with that my answer. Um, but really, again, I think that there's this intensely human and theatrical, right, Shakespearean, you know, side of this. These justices wear black robes, and they pop out from this red curtain, and they sit at this huge dais, and most Americans will never see or hear it. And so it just seems to me that there are no good reasons that we shouldn't be trying really hard to open up a channel between what happens in there, which affects all of us, and our access to what happens in there. Your job seems fun. It's so fun. I have the best job in the world. It's really very cool. And it's very cool that even though I'm trying to subtly undermine the court's sense of its own decorousness and gravitas. I'm still such a deeply captive, Patty Hearst, like lover of the institution. I mean, I just, it's not as though I'm there to shame and belittle them. I just feel as though the more I cover the court, the more I love it, the more I admire it. I have such deep regard for the people both on the bench and the advocates in front of the court, just the way they speak to each other, the level of seriousness and civility. I just think particularly in the moment that we're in in political discourse where it's just so – I think the technical legal term is yucky. It's really heartening to see a system with just deep, intense learning and tradition and respect. And so I think that the justices who – understand what I'm doing, understand that even though I'm kind of poking at it with a stick, I'm doing it out of deep reverence and love and not trying to topple the place down. Do you know the justices? I mean, in your reporting, do you get to know them or are they behind the chambers? Different reporters have really different approaches. I've met, I think, 
almost all of them at one point or another. I've interviewed a couple of them. Some reporters really try to seek a lot of access and sit down for interviews. I think I decided many years ago that access is hard to get and that I wasn't really sure what the payoff was, that I wasn't completely certain that trying to get access was going to be the thing that would best serve my readers. And so I think I just decided, and it goes back to the sports writing metaphor, that I was going to be a really good sports writer and I was just going to cover arguments and not get too fussed about who would give me an interview and who didn't. So by happenstance, I think I've met virtually everyone and certainly got to interview Justice Ginsburg a few years ago for uh, Glamour magazine, and it was a thrill. Those things are really thrilling. But by and large, to me, the magic and the mystery of it is what goes on at oral argument and not the kind of behind-the-scenes They don't tell you that much anyway. There's no scoops on this beat. There's very little searching through dumpsters and getting stories and following stories. These are nine pretty boring people (laughs) who go to their jobs. So it's not like reporting on the Hill where you're trying to cultivate connections and get scoops and get leaks. It's pretty much the opposite of that. And for all that everybody talks about the nastiness of the opinions, and they were nasty this year, 99% of the time, it's civil, and it's smart, and it's thorough. And that's just, how can we not be lit up by the possibility of that kind of discourse in the rest of the world? I'd like to talk a little bit about your book. Sure. Could you just tell me a little bit about your book? The impetus really was covering the Sotomayor and the Kagan confirmation hearings. And sitting in those hearings and listening to just the strange toxicity of the conversations around gender and race and identity politics at the court. What are the confirmation hearings? What are these? This is when, after the president nominates you, you have to be confirmed by the Senate. And this happens in the most spectacularly awful fashion where literally for five days on C-SPAN, you sit in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee and answer their questions. And it's terrible. It's terrible for the nominee because the nominee can't possibly answer the questions. And mostly each of the senators is just getting up and gibbering about something that is going to look good on TV. And after five days, it's just a marathon of ugliness. And a lot of gotcha and a lot of you wrote this thing one time in 1972, and it's just not useful. And if you're not going to have cameras in the U.S. Supreme Court, do you really want to put cameras on this utterly silly interview process? Is this how we want Americans to think about what judges are and what justice are and what they're going to become? And so I think we've completely flipped it. We watched this really, I think, sorted very, very political and ugly interview, and then we don't get to watch the justices do their work. And that makes no sense. And I think the book was an attempt to explore this duality of, well, of course gender makes a difference at the court. It can't not make a difference. But is it a bad thing? Is it bias? Or is it something that enriches and ennobles us? And that's what I've been trying to struggle with. And the truth is, like Sandra Day O'Connor, I really do feel like women and men are the same and do not say that we come to different conclusions. And like Sandra Day O'Connor, I wish John Roberts had been a woman. So I think we're all struggling with this slightly schizophrenic feeling about diversity and what we want to see represented at the court. And the book was trying to delve into a smarter way to talk about it than just bias, bias, bias. 
this Supreme Court, the current Supreme Court, is the narrowest constituted demographic court we've ever seen, by which I mean every one of the justices went to Harvard or Yale Law School. Most of them come from New York or California. There's only two justices that come from the whole center part of the country, flyover country. They've all had virtually the same job experience. They either came up as a federal judge or they came up in one of the administrations through the Justice Department. This is not the Warren Court. This is not the Burger Court. We no longer have a former governor. We no longer have a former state senator, somebody who litigated civil rights cases. All those people have fallen away. And what we have is people who are sort of hydroponically grown in underground labs to become justices. And they, with all due respect, have had really narrow life experiences and career experiences and educational experiences. And so it seems to me now more than ever is a good time to have a conversation about how bringing people with completely different backgrounds onto the court matters in ways it didn't matter back when we were nine white men still having governors, having people who were attorneys general, having people who just litigated case after case after case. All those people are gone. And so I think we've replaced one kind of diversity with another. But I think the kind of diversity that we have lost, educational and professional and just experiential diversity, is really important. Well, I think you're a wonderful voice in the conversation. And thank you for being here today. Oh, Josh, thank you for having me. And thank you really for listening to the podcast. And thank you for getting yourself to really care about the court. It's so important. That was me, WFIU's Josh Brewer, speaking with Slate.com's Supreme Court correspondent, Dahlia Lithwick. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. Profiles.